We're glad you're here, and uh, we're excited about what God is doing in our midst and how He has blessed us and how He has taken people with all these different generations and bringing us together to do a work for God. Let's pray. Father, I'd ask that, uh, again, as earlier this morning, You would open my heart to be able to say the things that You once said and that Your voice would speak to the hearts of people. Thank you for being here. Spirit of God, we invite your presence. We ask that you would be with people in this time, some who are going through some very difficult times um, with regard to their employment or concerns around that, with regard to finances and some with illness and some who are coming out of um, some relational difficulties and some, God, who I know are coming with joy and we celebrate that. But God, take these moments and allow your spirit to build us up and and help us to know how much you love us, how much you've given us. We pray in in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a veteran news analyst named Elmer Davis who wrote a book called But We Were Born Free. And in it, he makes one little quote, one line that um, has been quoted in different ways by others. But he says, This will remain the land of the free only so long as it is the home of the brave. People who remain in freedom are people who are courageous and who are brave. Because freedom is something that can be stolen. Freedom is something that over time, you may not even realize it, but you can be bound. Freedom is something that requires great bravery. We see it in the lives of people. You saw it in the lives of William Wilberforce, who stood for freedom for a very, very long time. Some of you saw that movie, Amazing Grace, or have read about his life and his, his struggle for freedom. Some of you may recall, since we've heard so much about it lately over this past election in the last few months, of, of Abraham Lincoln and the incredible fight that he, he made, the stand he made, and what it cost him. To do so, it, 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 it is a courageous and brave thing to stand for freedom. I was reading um, this, I just finished this book, which is the autobiography of Nelson Mandela. I've always wanted to understand a little bit more about his life. I heard things about it, him, and I just wanted to hear it from himself. And, and here's a man who tells the conditions of South Africa and his heartbeat, which is, was really for freedom. Not that the white African would be displaced, a South African, or that the Afrikaner would be somehow limited in their freedom, but that even the African black and all of them could live together in a land where there was human dignity and, and, and a desire for freedom. And uh, I read his story, The Long Walk to Freedom, and at a certain point I felt like this is the long book to get free. But anyway, um, I have to tell you, though, as I read it, and especially as I, I looked at his life and understood the the price of 27 and a half years in jail, separated from his family. He wasn't a perfect man by no means, and yet had a deep, deep longing to see people set free. We're looking at a letter that Paul the Apostle writes, and he is a freedom fighter who is willing to be courageous and brave and to struggle and to fight even against some of the 12 apostles at time to establish your freedom. To establish 
freedom for people that are around you, that God has orchestrated in your life as you walk, desiring that as you live free, they will understand this freedom. This freedom of a God who loves you, that when you carry burdens, you know there's a God who carries them with you. Think about that. People today who are carrying the burdens of the financial pressure as they see their their finances struggle. And as God comes alongside us and He says, you know what? I love you and I will provide for you. And as you walk that out, which isn't easy, people have the opportunity to look at your life and say, well, what gives you this hope? You know, I was listening to these songs that were sung, and there's a couple of them, like the last one, the bouncing and the joy, and it has this kind of almost spiritual kind of sense of freedom. Like when those African slaves would be down in southern parts of the the country, and they would be singing out these spirituals, and many of their songs were about freedom, and it had that life and bounce to it. Isn't it interesting? In the times of enslavement, you have this energy as you long for that. I was thinking of that song about the simple gifts, you know, when they sang about just the simple gifts. And, and I think it was a clarinet, right? Um, I couldn't, yeah, the clarinet just bouncing along. And I kept thinking of it. It had that floating sense of this butterfly. And God wants us to live like that. He gave His Son and paid a price that we might be set free, that we don't have to walk wondering about our guilt and wondering whether we're forgiven. We're forgiven by the blood of a sacrifice that was done once for all, that we can live forever and we don't have to try and get forgiven again. We live in the freedom of that sense of God's love and approval on your life. And and Paul wanted to make sure that nothing would would ever hinder that or in some way enslave us to a life that is not lived out of the freedom of what Jesus has done and by the Spirit of God working in our heart, communicating His Word to us so that we could live free, not having to live by the expectations of other people and seeking to find approval by them or wondering whether God does approve us. And as I read this story, I felt like as we got into Galatians here, you know, every once in a while I kind of... uh, veer off from where I'm heading to the chagrin of our planners of worship. But I felt like we had to stop here for a second and follow the, the long road of the path of freedom that Paul took. See, the Apostle Paul was this freedom fighter who took just like this long road to freedom that Nelson Mandela talks about. He had this long road. And, and as I was reading this, I felt like, you know, it's probably important, and I hope that it doesn't get a little bit boring at times, but I don't think it has to. But as you read through this passage of Scripture, um, after Paul talks about this dramatic life change he has in verse 15, but when God, who set me apart from birth, called me by grace, was so pleased, was so delighted, he was looking down at this guy who's killing his children, and he's so delighted to reveal to him Jesus. That doesn't make sense. But he does. So that I might preach among the Gentiles. I mean, that's even itself something that's important that we understand as we look at this passage that that in order to take a stand for freedom, Paul is this guy who can't stand the fact that the Jews, these Jews are following this guy Jesus and and at this point they're not really reaching out to the Gentiles, but God reaches him through this Damascus Road experience turns him around and then he tells him something unheard of. I'm going to make you an apostle to these outcasts called Gentiles. Well, if you're going to take a stand like that, it's important some things take place in your life. 
And I just want to share this. This road to freedom that you see in elements of it in the lives of other freedom fighters is also to be, I think, a Mark's elements in your life as well. We're going to look at four things in a moment that I think, three of them, we'll only get to three. We're going to look at three things. Three things, okay. That will that will be important as you walk out this life and, and influence people around you. But if he goes, what I want you to do is to notice his progress. He, he talks about, I didn't consult any man, nor did I go to up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But he, listen to this. We're going to kind of follow his path. I went immediately into Arabia and then later returned to Damascus. This is the road. And then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. Purpose being to get acquainted to Peter and stayed with him only 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that I'm writing to you. It is no lie. He wants to make very clear that his message is independent from anyone else, that it was given to him by God. And a little bit later in chapter 2, you'll see that he doesn't not just want to make sure that, that we know it's independent, but he wants to share with us that actually it's in agreement with the apostles, even though it was given to him separately. So he goes on and he says, um, I assure you, forgot what I'm writing isn't a lie. Later, I went to Syria and Cilicia. So here's the road, you see. Arabia, Damascus, up to Syria. As personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ, they only heard the report that the man who formerly persecuted us, now preaching the faith, he once tried to destroy, and they praised God because of me. We'll look at that in a moment and go, yes, they did. No, they didn't, really. But anyway, um, chapter 2, verse 1. And then 14 years later, I went up to Jerusalem again. This time with Barnabas and a guy named Titus. So here's, here's something I think historically you need to know. I get bored with academic stuff, so I'm even bored when I do this now. So um, just stay with me. I'll try and stay with myself. Okay. Christ's death and resurrection is about 2930 A.D. About 32 A.D., Paul is converted on the Damascus Road. After he's converted, it says, as it says in the text, he immediately went to Arabia. That's about 32 A.D. Galatians 1.17, if you want to be noting this, corresponds well with Acts 9.18 and verse, first part of 19. Now, I, I, I tell you this because I'm going to give you a timeline. Others will maybe see it differently depending on when you date the book, this letter of Galatians, but mine's the right one. Just kidding. I, you, you know that there's a lot of really smart guys out there. Anyway, um, returns to Damascus, 35 A.D. Galatians 1.17, the last part of that verse. Corresponds to Acts 9, verses 19, the last part to verse 25. He goes to Jerusalem, his first visit, which we read about in Galatians chapter 1, verse 18 through about 20. That's about 35.6 A.D. That corresponds with Acts 9, verses 26 through 30. He then heads to Syria, which is really Tarsus, Cilicia, and that's about 36 through about 46 A.D. could be 35 to 46, just about 11 years in Tarsus. Galatians chapter 1, verse 21, just that simple little verse. Acts chapter 9, 31 corresponds with that. And then he goes back to Antioch because Barnabas calls him after those 14 years after his conversion, which corresponds to what you see in chapter 2, verse 1. And he goes to, to, to um, or just before that, he goes to Antioch with Barnabas. That's Acts 11, 19 through 30. really doesn't mention that in Galatians, but it's um, just before that 
second visit, which is Galatians 2, 1 through 10. So at Galatians 2, 1 through 10, after he says, he says, for 14 years later, I went up to Jerusalem. And again, the idea of went up to Jerusalem is the idea that he, he um, if you look on the map, I, I was going to use this and I got a little pointer. It just, you can see he goes, he's in Damascus, has that road experience, goes all the way down to Arabia. What in Arabia? We'll find out in a minute. Um, he goes back from Arabia and he heads back, it says, to Damascus. From Damascus, he takes a short trip to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, he heads up to Tarsus. He's there 11 years now. It's 14 years since his conversion. He heads back once again to, from here to Antioch. Barnabas goes to get him. Check, um, is where he is. Barnabas wants him to come and help him with these Gentile converts. After he goes to Antioch, chapter 2, verse 1, it says in Galatians, he then goes back down to Jerusalem and he meets with the disciples there just to make certain that he's on course and doesn't want to run in vain, as he says in here, because he's really afraid that these Judaizers are messing things up. What you need to know, after his second vision, his trip to Jerusalem, he heads once more back to Antioch. In Antioch, the church is worshiping and praying. They're seeing Gentiles come to Christ. They're worshiping and praying and they're fasting. They're hungering for God to do a work. And the Holy Spirit speaks. And the Holy Spirit calls him to Galatia. You put the map just up there for a second again. He calls him, because this will be helpful for people, from, from Antioch through this area here. He plants these churches, comes back to Antioch. They're celebrating and praising the God, praising God. And some people from Jerusalem go up here and start saying, no, he's not really the apostle like the real apostles. He's just a wannabe apostle. He, they go up and they tell all these churches up here, no, he's not just a... Um, he, he, his message isn't really the full gospel. You have to actually be circumcised and some things of law. And so he, at this point, when they're up there, he's in Antioch, he sends a letter to the Galatians, which we have here before us. After the letter is sent, Paul, at a certain point, has a revelation. It says in chapter 2, by revelation, he goes back down to Jerusalem. He doesn't go there for the purpose of establishing the gospel. He goes down there to bring a gift to the poor because of the fast that, because of the um, uh, the economic situation and, and the fact that there had been a drought. And, and so he brings this gift, and when he's down there, that's when the Jerusalem Council takes place because he meets with them privately to make sure that we're all on the same page. Okay? I, I was doing this earlier, and I probably... But I was... You remember that dog I kind of ran over? I do this to her and she just goes nuts. On but anyway, you'll probably send the humane side to my house soon. Um, <laughs> right. Anyway, let's, let's look at this. Here are some marks that I think are really important in, in our lives. And the first is, if you're going to take a stand and you're really going to make a difference as you walk this life of freedom out, the first thing that you see in Paul's situations that tells us that when the son was revealed in Paul, he says, I immediately went to Arabia. And you've got to ask yourself, why? What, what's in Arabia? It's just a desert. What's this about? What would you spend three years of your life right after this incredible encounter with God in the land of Arabia? Well, it's pretty clear that Paul was dramatically changed. He had this incredible experience, and he had this revelation, and this was, um, it, it appears to be something new. So he takes 
his stuff goes to the desert in order to do, I think, two things. To read God's word, to understand it, to study it, to make certain that this Jesus who revealed himself to him is truly the Messiah that is talked about in the Old Testament so that he can really understand it, so that he is sure that this revelation wasn't just some kind of figment of his imagination, but this revelation, which was so real to him, was also going to be established by what he read in the Old Testament. He knew the Old Testament, but he took three years to set apart some time to study to get to know God. Now, I just will just kind of say here, one of the reasons we do have adult classes, one of the reasons we have small groups, one of the reasons we have a thing called Village School of the Bible is for people, as they come to this experience and begin to understand God's work in your life, is for the opportunity to be able to know God's Word, to be able to understand it, so that you can understand this incredible love of God, be able to defend what God has done in your life, so that you can know that and live it and walk in freedom, so that you don't have other people like these Judaizers come along and say, you need to do this, you need to do that, and you need to do that. You begin to understand it, and God's Word, He has set you free. And then beyond that, not only does he go there to study God's Word, to understand it so that he can begin to know it and, and, and have it become integrated into your life, into his life. Because he had studied under Gamaliel, so he was very wise with God's Word. He was now integrating it into his experience. And one of the ways he integrated it into his experience was this. Remember what I said last time we were talking here? It says that God was delighted to reveal His Son. He didn't say to me, outside of me, but in me. He was going to meet with God because he knew there would be difficult times ahead. He knew that if he was called to actually bring God in Christ, the Messiah, in this message that was reserved for the Jews to the Gentiles, he had to know God intimately. He had to hear the Word of God, not just by reading it, but he had to hear the God with His Word in his heart. One of my big concerns for the evangelical church is so often we have the Word of God in our head. And we, we could have the potential of Jesus like he, when He walked to the Pharisees. He said to the Pharisees, you study the Word so much, you, you diligently open it up and you know all about it, but you don't know Me. And so it's so good to study God's Word. But the purpose of studying God's Word is to grow into an intimate relationship with God so you understand Him and understand how incredible He is. And you begin to take the time to not just read His Word, but listen to His voice. Folks, God, as I said before, never has intended for anyone to have a second-hand experience with Him. He never intended for you to be born into a home and into a faith and into a, a place of people who go to church and, 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 and they, the, your parents, may have some kind of relationship. His desire is always to have a personal, intimate relationship with you. And, and, and sometimes people come into this understanding and, and they accept Jesus and they ask Him into His heart and then they begin to walk, but they don't realize that their walk is about an intimate, daily conversation with God. I shared first service, I, you know, I talked about, I mean, if you guys are, room, you have roommates or you have people in your home that you live with, you, don't you expect to have conversation in the morning? Well, maybe some don't in the morning. Right? There's a proverb about that. But don't you, through the day, expect to be in conversation with the people that you're with? Would we expect God not to talk to us? To converse with us? 
That's the real life. That's the, that's the liberty that comes as a result that we've been forgiven. And this God now relates to us in a way. And He speaks to us through the simple gifts of life. He speaks to us as we look at nature at times. He speaks to us through people around us who love us. He speaks to us sometimes through our enemies. Because sometimes our enemies can point out truths that we don't ever want to hear. But they do it to hurt us. But if we are mature enough, we can step back and say, God, is there some truth in this so I can hear it? Isn't this the God that we have called that we've been called to serve and to love and to who has loved us. And I just, I go, that's what Paul does? Why does he go to Arabia? Because God speaks to his heart and says, Paul, get away. What do we usually do when someone of power and fame comes to Jesus? We parade them in front of everybody before they're established and have any sense of rooting. And then when they turn away or they do something really dumb, we're all, <laughs> we really, he wasn't really saved. But, you know, baloney. God calls us to be people who, you know, know His Word, understand it, love it, digest it. And He calls us to be people who have first-hand experiences with Him. I have to tell you, I'm so proud as I look at some of our leaders and I've heard leaders struggling with things going on in their life and how I've, I've heard how they listen and they're beginning to, you know, in, in a sense of hearing and God's at work in our lives, folks. God's doing something. We're listening. We're beginning to converse. Not that you haven't and we haven't before, but we're learning even to converse more so with the Spirit of God. One of the most powerful moments in my life, and it was one of these delayed kind of things in my life, I, I went to college, um, I'll date myself back in, it was in 1976. It was my freshman year in that winter of that time. And I went to an Urbana conference. Anybody heard of Urbana? So this is kind of a missions conference. And some guy wasn't really excited about it, but he kind of harangued me to go on my vacation time. And I went. And I wasn't impacted by necessarily any of the speakers. And I say this because I wasn't at a time where my life was really walking in a sense of wanting to follow the Lord. But my ears perked up at one point. There was a guy named Billy Graham. I don't remember a thing he said in his message. They did just about a five-minute interview with him. And they asked him, Billy, how is it after all these years, you seem to have such a fresh, alive walk with God, and you seem to stay so on track, and, and you seem to be able to take a stand without moving to the right or left. You seem to be able to move this. What is the secret and he said, he said, every morning, every morning, before I have any breakfast, before I read the paper, before I exercise, before I do anything, I spend some time, and he gave a portion of time, to read God's Word, and then I just listen and pray in conversation with God. That's how you begin to take a stand. That's what Paul did. He went to Arabia and he got things established in his heart. He began to develop this intimate relationship with God so that when he came into the tough times and his freedom was being infringed or the freedoms of others were being infringed, he heard, he knew the voice of God. He didn't just know the word, he knew the voice of God. There's another thing that I think is important that we take a stand as you look in the freedom fighters throughout history, but especially as you look in the life of Paul. It says that after he was in Arabia, he went to Arabia. Look at this. It says later he returned to Damascus. And you go, well, why would he go back to Damascus? Here's my understanding. I think God at a certain point said, okay, 
three years, it's like seminary, time to go. You're prepared. I'm sending you back to where you live. It's, it's kind of where he was known. We always like to go somewhere else, but God sends us a lot of times. Even when it comes to breaking family patterns. You know, we had the uh, Teen Challenge here. Teen Challenge, they came last week. They shared their stories of addictions and all the different things that, and, and how God's worked in their life. But one of the things that's really interesting, when you look, listen to their stories, often what God will do is he'll take them and set them apart for a period of time, but then he'll put them back into life so that they have to integrate what happened here. And one of the great things about Teen Challenge is they told stories, right? One of the things that when you take a stand is you have to take and begin to start to tell your story. It's a good thing to tell your story. Because when you start telling your story, it establishes within your heart what God has done. And not only is it establishing in your heart what God has done, it actually impacts other people. Because when they hear your story, their lives are changed. So God says, go back to Damascus. And you can imagine going back to Damascus. He had to be, I think, maybe somewhat afraid. Paul, one of the things he asked for often was to be bold. Paul, be bold. But he goes back to Damascus because he needs to be bold. Because going back to Damascus, he was nobody's man. He comes back there and the believers are afraid of him. They're scared to death. They think he's going to kill him. He goes back to Damascus and the Jews who are zealots find out what's going on in his life. And they feel betrayed and they want to kill him. And yet he goes back because he's told to, to tell his story. One of the greatest things to take your stand is not only do you get that sense of foundation built where you begin to, to listen to and hear God's word and listen to and hear his voice, but you then begin to share with your voice the story that God has done in your life. And stories are powerful, right? We heard them last week. One of the things that I want us to be very cautious about, one of the things that is really in this generation called postmodernism that's very important to postmoderns is this idea of story. And I've heard some people go, oh, they've said, they, they story, you know, let's, it, it reminds me back in the days of the Pentecostal movement. It's really funny how you have the Pentecostals and you have these groups and they divide out like this and over time God brings us back together because we react so strong. And I'm going to call us as a church not to react to the story part of postmodernism because the story part of postmodernism is important to both the work that Jesus has done as well as the testifying because that's all a story is. And the reason stories are so powerful today is because how do you refute a story? God is not telling us, people, that we have to go out and we have to take the truth and shove it down people's throats. It's, it's not about, can we know enough so we can prove people and disprove them? You'll see in a moment when I get into this last point, Paul never did that. Or, I mean, let me say, Paul did do that and God removed him from doing that. All he calls us to do is to share what God is doing in our life today. Anybody can do that unless you don't have a story. I remember when I sang in this group called Young Folk for a church back in Rockford, Illinois. It was the uh, high school choir, the Young Folk. We were so cool. Anyway, I shouldn't have been in the choir. Anyway, every one of us were told that we had to tell our story. I want to tell you, one of the worst things to do is to force someone to tell their story when they don't have a story. I'm sitting there trying to figure out to tell my story. I remember writing things saying, well, I was lost, I was chasing women, I was into drugs, and then at five years of age, I found the Lord. You know, I said, what am I going to say? But God's worked in your heart. You should have a story of when you first encountered Him, when we talk in our values about encountering God. That's what we want people to do, is have an encounter with God. You should have that story, but you should have a continuing story daily 
of this God who works in your life and you hear his voice so that when you are going through life and and people see you where you work or where you live out your life and they look at it and they see the joy, even though it's painful and stressful, the joy is not so much that you have this effervescent happiness, but the joy is that there's a God who is with you and loves you and promises to take care of you and provide for you even when you're scared to death. You have this confidence. And someone's looking and going, tell me your story, what's up? And if you don't have a story, let me share with you, it's not difficult to get one, okay? You don't need to do what I did. All you need to do is say, Jesus, I recognize my life. I recognize that I've offended you, which is called sin. I recognize that this sin messes up my life. I recognize that this sin offends and hurts other people. And I just need you in my life. So I agree with you, confession. And I want to turn from that repentance. And I invite you into my life. That you would start revealing yourself to me. And I can promise you folks, if you've never done that, He will come into your heart. And for those who have been living on secondhand experiences, you're living on the experience of a Sunday school teacher, or you're living on the experience of a growth group facilitator, or you're living on the experience of a pastor who gives a message Sunday by Sunday. I just want to tell you, that's a crummy way to live. I just feel bad. There's nothing more exciting than knowing God speaking to your life. And He will speak to anyone. It isn't about whether you're holy enough. You can't do anything more to be forgiven more. It was all done by Jesus. And He just wants to set you free. Now I've got a few minutes just to share with you this last taking of a stand. And it's really important, folks. When you take a stand like Paul did, he went to Arabia, he got established so that he could know God's Word and understand, integrate it, and listen to His voice. And, he, and he, he, be, he was telling his story, which helps establish the story of God in your own life. And there's a really interesting thing that God does. He often sends you away again. He's almost got to marinate you. Because we are so filled up with the patterns of our family and our own strategies to try and figure out how to survive, that finally those strategies, sometimes if they're successful, like Jesus said, the rich person, the person who's really good at their strategies, they never ever get God because they have learned how to do it on their own and they miss, they miss God. But the person whose strategies, you begin to realize they're they're like prisons, the things that at one time seemed to work, they're not working now, and I'm in prison now, and I need you, God. And you begin to see the flesh, which is the things you do in your own strength, aren't going to get you to the place you need to be to, fill, to really live out fully all that God has for you. It's what I've been saying from time to time, this little mantra that I feel God gave me a few years back, which was saying, Uh, When will the church get sick and tired of trying to do in their own strength what only can be done in the strength of God? It doesn't mean He doesn't use our strength, but it's countercultural. It's about God breaking down our flesh and our natural reactions and the way that we want to grab and control and maintain. And He begins to work on those things. We have painful things that come into our life and so that He can begin to move us into the Spirit. And often what He'll do is He'll send you into the wilderness, into a desert for a number of years. 
So that when you read here this little statement in verse 21, later I was sent to Syria and Cilicia. Let me just stop here really quickly to say, Paul's breezing by something. That was 11 years of wilderness. Desert experience. And so, listen to what it says, the scripture. I'm going to read to you the scripture, um, if I can find it around here. Here it is. Acts chapter 9, verse 26 to 31. Listen to this. Saul comes back. He spent several days with the disciples in Damascus after his three-year experience. He's in the flesh. He's established. He's rooted. He's probably telling his story. But at once, he also then began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. He's now armed and loaded with the word of God, right? All those who heard him were astounded. And what their question was, isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And isn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief of priests? Isn't that what he did about three years ago? What's he been doing? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. So he's in his flesh. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. They can't stand him. It reminds me of when I was back in seminary. I remember watching a professor. We were all excited he was going to be on TV. He was debating with another person who was an atheist. And this guy, this professor, just blew the other guy apart. Won the argument but lost the war, so to speak. Because everyone turned against the... He was brilliant, but he, he was not gentle or kind or merciful. He just... And everyone wanted to kill the guy. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch in the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through the opening in a wall. And when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they're all afraid of him, not believing that he's really a disciple. He's just an imposter again. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Listen to this. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews. Got them so angry that they tried to kill him. And God says, i got to get this guy out of here. Because look at the next line. When the brothers learned of this, they took him and sent him off. They shipped him to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And the next line is the greatest. It's funny. Then the church of Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. <laughs> I love that. Humorous is from the word human. And when you look at yourself as a human being and you see the things you do, here is Paul. He is sent for 11 years. They kind of go, Paul, love you. You're doing great. But you know what? You've got to start to move in the spirit. You need God's spirit to guide you. Goes for 11 years in the wilderness. You know what, folks? Part of our training as a believer to really be a freedom fighter, one who brings freedom to other people, is to be willing to spend that time that needs to be in those wilderness places. And you may be in one right now. And you may be saying, but God, I just, I know I've got something I want to do for you, and I just, I want to get into that place, and, and I want to do it now. And God's saying, there's just things I've got to do in your heart. Before you can produce the things your heart longs to, which are good, there's a process that has to take place within you. So don't fight it. Don't fight it. In a moment, we're going to take communion. And as we take communion, we're going to um, celebrate once again the work of the greatest freedom fighter of all time, forever and ever. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God.
who has given us forgiveness and placed within our hearts the power of God to live this life fully for Him now and forever.